Good morning to you all. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord. Glad the Lord led you here this morning. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm glad you're here. Oh, that was sorry. Now turn around to them and say, I'm really glad you're here. Okay. That's a little bit better. That's a little bit better. If I can get a little more personal this morning, uh, what I'd like to do is share with you what I think is one of the saddest moments in the life of a church. The saddest moment. The saddest moment in the life of a church is when a brother or sister in Christ decides to stray from the Lord and follow a life of sin. That is sad. And your heart just longs for them. Your heart cries out for them. You feel so helpless. You feel like, you know, oh, I just want to reach out and hug them and I just want to win them back to the Lord. And yet, it doesn't work that way. Now, adding to that pain is when no one in the church seems to care or make any effort to help them. They make no effort to help the person to come back to the Lord and the person goes over the horizon out of sight, out of mind. That is a sad moment. That is a sad moment. And then I think at times like this, perhaps the sinner says, see, nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody even noticed I was gone. Nobody cared what my life was falling apart and I decided to walk away from the Lord. On the other hand, maybe even believers ask this question. Does God care about his prodigal sheep? If so, what provisions has he made to help them? As a church, what should the church do? What can the church do to help restore errant brothers and sisters in Christ and bring them back to the Lord? You see, these are all important questions. Perhaps even if you turn to the person sitting next to you and you ask yourself, what would I do if they chose to depart from the Lord? Or what if I departed from the Lord? What would happen? What would happen? And that's why the topic of church discipline in the church is so needful. Because there are thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who are in exactly that shape. And in exactly those kinds of churches. And they desperately need help. And they desperately need God in their life. And so this is why we come to this topic of church discipline in the church. Now, this is all part of our series on what does the Bible say about the church. And so in your bulletins, there are listed down the different titles that we had and the different key words that will help you to remember the key points. And last week, we talked about the service of the church. And the two words that you can put in there are the words heart and rewards. Those are the two words that you can put in there. Someone uh, told me, he said, you should have put the word cruise ship and battleship. Then I would remember what you said last week. Maybe I should have. But those are two things that these are key words that help us to remember the heart of what God was trying to say to us. But now we're coming to this, this issue of church discipline. And so there's three things that we can only cover today. We can't cover this in great depth, but let's do our best. And so the first thing is problems requiring church discipline. Why do we even need church discipline? Isn't it just a a waste of time? Isn't it something that's antiquated? Isn't it something that was for those people and not for us today? You know, is that what it is? No, it's timeless. It is timeless. 
Fighting sin is timeless. It is something that will happen to all of us. It's not a matter of if it will happen. It is always when will it happen. Because sin has such a stronghold on us. And even though we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, maybe perhaps the challenge even becomes greater. Where do we see this happening? How do we see it unfolding? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul said this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And he goes on and on and on. And so Paul's saying, look, look, you believers out there, please walk worthy of your calling. Walk as a, as, as a Christian. Walk as a follower of Christ. Why? He, does he have to give that? Because you don't have, some people don't walk like a Christian. They don't walk like a follower of Christ. They sin. It's a real problem. Paul knew it. Everybody knows it. And now you know it. And so we struggle with this whole business of trying to live according to our calling, to live up to our status before the Lord. How intense is this struggle? Well, we go to different passages in the scripture and it highlights different aspects of it. If you turn to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verse 38. The second half of this verse, Jesus said truth when he says this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Because oftentimes what happens to us is we try to fight sin on our grounds with our resources. We fight it in the flesh. And so if I just have enough willpower, I can overcome this sin. And so we try and try and try to all of our might to try and overcome sin in our life. And we fail. And we fail. That's what Jesus said when he said, the spirit is willing. I want to do right, but I can't. The flesh is weak. And also, the scripture also points out to us that there is this gigantic um, conflict going on between the spirit of God and the flesh. If you look to Galatians chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And so here's the spirit of God. Here's the flesh. And they're going at it. They're going at it. There is a huge battle going on in your heart and in your soul. And it's between the spirit of God and the flesh. Because the flesh wants to do one thing and the spirit wants to do another. What does the flesh want to do? Go down to verse 19 of Galatians chapter 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of angers, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have warned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so this conflict leads to sinful acts that may reveal themselves in our behavior, everyday behaviors and feelings. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans penned these words in chapter 7, verse 21, there's not a slide on this one, but it says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. You see? So there are going to be problems in your life and in my life that, le- that are sinful and they have to be dealt with in some way. 
When that situation comes up, what can we count on? What what can we look to for help? Well, we can look to the church and we can look to God's people to help. But sometimes we don't want the church or church God's people to be involved in our life, right? So our attitude is, who are you to mess with my life? Stay out of my business, you know? Don't don't put your nose where it's not wanted or where it's not welcomed, so on and so forth, you see? But the opposite ought to be true for every believer. Because when God exercises church discipline and he brings people across our paths to help us, we should welcome that. We should welcome their involvement in our lives and their encouragement in our life, you see? Because they're the God's provision for that. And when they come, they should come with the wisdom of God as they help us with our struggle and with our challenge. Proverbs chapter 2 tells us this in verses 6 through 9. It tells us about the wisdom of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And he preserves the way of his godly ones, he says in these verses. Then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. And so, my friend, yes, there is a very real situation in your life and mine. And that is this battle for the flesh and the spirit leading to sin. And so what happens is who wins out is going to determine which way we go. And so we need, we have this going on in our life and we need such things as church discipline. Human beings being human will sin and the church and God's people who comprise it is one of God's provisions to overcome sin in our lives. And that sets the premise for everything else we're going to say from here on out, okay? And I hope you're going to listen to this because there is so many, so many conflicting views of how all of this should happen and how it works itself out. But what can you expect from the church? What can you expect from God's people when you are caught in sin or when you see someone caught in sin? What is your responsibility? And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so from the problems, we move over the the process of church discipline. And there's two major passages that you'll need to know. But before we go into it, when we talk of discipline, you must understand that Discipline is not punishment. They are two different things. I came from a household where it was real blurry. <laughs> what was discipline and what was punishment? And so when I grew, when I was growing up in the home, I didn't know if I was getting, you know, I was getting taught or I was getting whacked. I don't know which it was. Most of the time it was being whacked because I was a pretty naughty kid, to put it in your terms, you see. And so discipline is what? Discipline is for correction. It's meant for our good. Whereas punishment is meant for being the consequences. They are the consequence of doing something bad. Okay? That's what punishment is. So please, parents, uh, teachers, whoever you are, okay? Elders (laughs) included, all of us. Let's get it straight. Discipline is different. It is for correction. It is positive. And it will help us to uh, keep ourselves straight. But the passage I want to lead you to is Hebrews chapter 12. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, please. And in Hebrews chapter 12, we have a very uh, uh, powerful passage that will help us to understand what is going on when the Lord disciplines us. And this will help clarify some of the fog that's out there. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, starting with verse 5, we see that God helps us by disciplining us. And he goes off and he gives us the reasons why he takes the time to discipline us. You know, sometimes as a parent, I often said to myself, oh, I'd rather be watching a football game. Oh, I'd rather be, you know, reading my books. I would rather be watching my favorite TV show. Why do I have to deal with these kids? You know, why do I have to take time to discipline them? You see, but the Lord tells us why he disciplines us, why he takes the time in Hebrews chapter 12. So starting with verse five and six, we have this first reason why God disciplines us. It says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The first reason why God takes the time to discipline you and me is because he loves us. He loves us. And I know sometimes that is hard to understand. It's a hard concept for us to, 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 to embrace in our own lives. But it's truly out of love that God does it. He goes the extra mile. He goes the extra mile. Why? Because he loves us. And if you read further in verse 6 and on through verse 9, we have the second reason he disciplines us. Because we are his children. Look at starting with the... End of verse 6. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom this father does not discipline? But you are without discipline. If you are, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we are earthly... We had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live, he says? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, dis he disciplines us for our good. So what does he do here? He disciplines us because we are his. We are his children, you see. We're not substitute children. We are real, genuine children of God. And because God is the Father and God loves us, he disciplines us. But also in verse 10, hidden in there, you will see that he talks about uh, earthly fathers disciplining their children. But, he's this, but he, meaning God, disciplines us for our good. Our good. It's not for God's good. <laughs> it's for his good. He doesn't do this so that he doesn't have any headaches in the future. Okay? He does it because it's for our good. You know, we're very quick to say, I want all the good stuff from God for me, okay? If you want the good stuff, you're going to have to take some discipline from the Lord. Because why? It is for our own good. And then, in verse 11, he gives the last reason. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. God wants to produce righteousness in your life and in mine. You see? I don't know. Sometimes we sit out there and we say, oh, I wish I could be more righteous. I wish I could, you know, just be a, 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 you know, upstanding person, so on and so forth. The only way to get that is if you're being under the discipline of the Lord. So God makes it very clear then why he disciplines us in Hebrews chapter 12. 
But he goes on and God tells us, God helps us with discipline through a process. He goes through a process. And this is Matthew chapter 18. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, let's look at the process that God puts in place for us to receive church discipline. Now, when you approach this, you can't help but notice the whole range of uh, of issues that need to be um, dealt with with church uh, with discipline. Okay, uh, there's all kinds. There's the very minor ones, the problems such as uh, the ones found in Galatians chapter six. Galatians chapter six refers to what many call the more common sins, the everyday sin of our life. Okay, and so. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, talks about these. And it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And the word there, caught in a trespass, means to be seen or to be ensnared by a sin. And so many of us enter into sin and we don't even know we're in it. We just got caught. We got swallowed up in this thing. It took a life all of its own. You see, that's one end of the spectrum. That's one end of the spectrum for sins. But there is another spectrum. There's the other end of the spectrum which has other kinds of sins as well. And these would be the more serious type. And this one mainly has to do with the spirit of rebelliousness. That comes into the heart of people. This is the one that says, I want to sin, I will sin, and nobody can stop me from sinning. I will not change my mind. Okay? It's that kind of rebellious spirit. Okay? And so, we see this kind of described for us in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And speaking about this, it says, The man who acts presumptuously... uh, Uh, By not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, the man shall die. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. If you read it in the New New Living Translation, it says it this way. Perhaps it's clearer. Anyone arrogant enough to reject the verdict of the judge or of the priest who represents the Lord your God must die. In this way, you will purge the evil from Israel. Then everyone else will hear about it and be afraid to act so arrogantly. So there are these sins that happen to us as we go about life. They were not premeditated. They are not something that we uh, particularly were looking for or wanting to do, but they happened in our life. All the way to the ones where it is premeditated. There is a deep seated desire to sin and there is an arrogance there is a rebelliousness around it and it says i'm going to do it no matter what i don't care who you are i don't care what you say i don't care what you're going to do to me i'm going to do it anyway that is that kind of spirit so you got this in you got that in and these uh, and everything in between and these are the problems that have to be dealt with with the process of church discipline Now, please understand that when church discipline comes about, it's usually leaning towards the more extreme ones. It's leaning toward the more rebellious ones. When uh, Tony Evans wrote on church discipline, he wrote this. Church discipline is not applied because someone did something that someone else doesn't like. Discipline is applied because someone did something that God doesn't like and refuses to repent and come back. Do you get the difference? You get the difference there? I'm not going to exercise church discipline against you because you did something that, fought, you know, that upset my 
my personal preferences and things like that. But it's because you have offended God. You see, you have trespassed on God. So please understand that the problems we're talking about are probably those that lean more toward the more serious, arrogant, rebellious type of sins. And so, who are the participants? Look at verse 15. Matthew chapter 15 again. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 again. And you will see there in verse 15 says, If your brother sins. So one participant is a fellow family member of uh, a family member and member of the family of God. Okay? He says, Go off and do this. And he says the word go. Who's the go referring to? It means you. So there is one who needs restoration. There is one who must go and do the restoring. He's the one that does the rest, has a part in doing the restoration. So any one of us here could be put in either, it could be in uh, that position of where we are going to help and go to restore somebody. The process. This is probably the part that you're most interested in. What is the process that God would put us through if we are to discipline? Well, starting with verse 15, 15, we go on to this. And we see, first of all, uh, this one-on-one. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. In private. This is private intervention. This is one-on-one. This is one-on-one. Say it. One-on-one. Okay? This is private. All right? But what is our tendency? Sometimes it's go, oh, did you see that? Oh, did you see that? You know, so, oh, wait until I tell, you know, so-and-so. No, the first approach is one-on-one, okay? So it's a private intervention. The second one is semi-private intervention. This is found in verse 16. But the Lord does not listen, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So I call this one on two or more. <laughs> okay, this is what we call it. So we had what? One on one, and then we had what? One on two or more. Okay, you got it? So this is semi-private. This is semi-private. So this, the, the, pro- the process begins to go further and further along. Until you get to verse 17, the first part. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And so now it gets to the church level. And this is public intervention. Tell it to the church. Now, different churches handle this different ways. Very large churches would say, we take it to the elders. We take it to the elders, okay? And so this is the way we handle it. We don't want to, you know, destroy anybody. We don't want to uh, humiliate anybody. But the whole idea here is to restore people. And so they will only take it to the elders, for example, or maybe even a designated committee uh, to handle these type of things. That's one way to do it. But notice here that they only happen after one-on-one and one-on-two or more. Okay, those first two steps have to happen first. And then it goes to the church. And then we move over to the last step. This is found in verse 17, the second half. And it says again, And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so this would be 
public excommunication. This would be excommunication. This would be the final step, and it's very, very extreme. But understand that three times this person has already said, no, I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to change my ways. Okay? He doesn't get just one strike. He doesn't get just two strikes. He gets three strikes before this happens. All right? So God is very compassionate. God is very patient with this person. And so we find here that the final uh, case is that they would be uh, sent out of the fellowship of the church. Now, this should be reserved for very serious and uh, type of sins and, dis- and uh, trespasses. And so, if you look at Titus, the book of Titus, chapter 3. Titus, chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. You will see this unfolded for you. Titus, chapter 3, starting with verse 10. Paul had to deal it way back then. In verse 10, it says, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumstances who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. And, oh, that's, I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. And it says there, it says in um, verse 10, reject a factious man after a f- the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. And so we are to re- we are to 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 reject this person. We are to send him out in this situation. But even if it reaches the point of excommunication, removing a person from the fellowship, that even has some limits. Because how should we treat a person for whom this has happened? If you tur- turn to Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, chapter three, verse fourteen, on to fifteen, it says this: If anyone does not obey my instruction in this letter, like special note, take a special note of that person and do not associate with him, so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. And I know that's very hard for some churches because once they, quote, wash their hands of you, they want nothing to do with you. And yet the scripture says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't treat them like an enemy, but rather, he says, treat them like a brother. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, this is what it says about how to get along generally in the body of Christ. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. So my point is this. You go one-on-one, you go one-on-two, you go to the church, and then you go, lastly, to the point where if the person doesn't listen, you actually remove them from the church. But even if we remove them from the church, how we treat them is still very important. It's still very important. Perhaps it'll be that one act of kindness and love that will turn that person back to the Lord. And so the process must be must take go forward and it must be, happen gently and firmly, giving the person every opportunity to return and to be restored. So 
God calls his people to be restored by a fair and firm process that gives ample opportunities to turn back from their sinful ways. Now, I keep hammering on this. I keep hammering on this. Because when you talk about church discipline, people don't like to talk about it. People don't like to do it. And sometimes it comes across as very harsh. And it comes across very hard by the people dispensing church discipline. But it also is oftentimes rejected by people who experience it, okay? And all I'm trying to say to you is God does it for our own good. He is fair in his, pro- in his process, extremely fair, if you will, and he gives us every opportunity to turn back, you see? And so please, don't wag your finger if you're a person who needs to be under church discipline. Don't wag your finger in the face of God and say, you guys are all a bunch of this and that and all this kind of stuff. No, God behind it. And because he has written out this process, he wants you to welcome church discipline if it is needed and it happens in your life. Okay? So, this becomes important to us. Now, this leads us to the last point, which are the priorities of church discipline. The priorities of church discipline. What is it? Well, we saw a little bit of that in Galatians chapter 6 when we read it earlier. And I'll refresh your memory. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. The word restore means... It looks like a medical term. It's a description of setting a broken bone. Okay? It is to make the person whole again. And that is the goal. That is the priority of church discipline. The priority of church discipline is not to humiliate or destroy a person. That's not the goal. The goal is to restore that person to fellowship. To reconcile them back to God. See, so there's two R's involved here, restore and reconcile, restoration, reconciliation. Okay, so keep that in your mind. What is the priority in exercising church discipline? Oh, man, some of you guys are not awake here. What is it? Restoration and reconciliation. That is the goal, folks. That is the priority of God is to restore and to reconcile people back to the Lord. And so, there's another purpose that is found, and this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. And he was talking in a situation where a, a, a young person was sleeping, was having an affair with their stepmother. Oh, this is really a tough one. And so... The church at first didn't do anything about it. And Paul had to call them to task and say, look, you need to do deal with this. You can't just let this keep going on. And so in verse six, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of the dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Leaven was something that was used for cooking but it was also something seen by the Jews as being unclean. He says, take this unclean element out of the church. So, church discipline has another purpose. It is restoration and reconciliation, but it's also purification of the church. It is purification of the church. 
So those are the priorities that God has established in his word for church discipline. So whether it's the elders who are exercising this, whether it is the congregation who is exercising this, or it is individuals trying to help somebody and go through this, these are the clear priorities that God has laid out. Now that leaves us then with this last part, which is the roles and responsibilities. What are the roles and responsibilities? Well, I think, first of all, we have to look individually. We have to look at what can an individual do? What role and responsibility do they have? So let's go first to the person who goes to do the restoration. This is the guy in Galatians chapter 6. What can he do? First, I think he should be looking out for other people. He should be looking around them, okay? It's not like you go to the person next to you and you stare at them. I'm looking at you. You know, I know what you did last summer, you know, and all this kind of stuff. That that is what he's talking about. But look out for one another. Who are people that are that weren't that that were here last week but are not here this week? People who were you know here, you know, two weeks ago but are not here today. What are we looking out for them? You see, or are we looking out for one another? Number two, to love and care enough to go to that person. And so find out what's going on in their life. Not being nosy or busybody but prayerfully going to them if there's evidence that they are struggling with something. You can do this through your friendships and your fellowships. You can do it through your care groups and your Bible studies. There's many different ways to do this, okay? But one of the hardest things to do is to convince individuals that they should look out for one another. If I were struggling with sin, would you notice it? Would you know it? Would you care enough to come to me and say, Pastor, what's going on in your life? I just sense there's something, and I really would like to help. Okay? That's the spirit in which we go. So the one who goes should be doing these things. But how about the one who needs to be restored? How about the one who needs to be restored? This is an individual basis now. Okay? Remember, there was the person that says, stay out of my business. Don't ever talk to me again about this, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. Knowing that church discipline is from the Lord and is for our own good, what can we do? First of all, listen. Listen. Remember the passage in Matthew 18? How many times did the person not listen? How many times? Three. He didn't listen, you see? And so what happens is that heed and heed what is being said. Carefully heed what is being said. It's being said for your own good. You see, if you don't listen and you continue to continue in your evil way and you fall off the cliff, who are you going to blame? You only have yourself because you didn't listen. You didn't heed. Another thing is be aware that you can cross the line with God. First Corinthians chapter five, verse five says this. He says, cross the line. What do you mean? Crossing the line means that You have gone so far and God's patience and love has carried you so far and you've been graced so much and yet there's a line that you can cross where God says enough is enough. What can happen? Look at verse 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. What does he do? They kept talking to this man who was having this affair with his stepmother. He wouldn't listen. And Paul says, that's it. That's it. And now I am releasing him 
from the protection of the church. And I'm sending out him. I'm letting him be uh, vulnerable to Satan's attack for the destruction of his flesh. Meaning, most people take this to mean death. Okay? And I know we don't like to talk about that. I don't like to talk about it. But it's there. Okay? And many people who are locked and engaged in sin and sinful lifestyle, they have no idea that they're playing with fire. Eternal fire. And so what happens here is that they are subject to what uh, to uh, losing their life. Is there only one place that that's said or is it said another place? No, it's also said in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 20, okay? And apparently there were some people who persisted in stirring up the church and getting all kinds of problems to the church. Uh, and then this is what Paul said about them. Among these are Hermenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Again, the release from the protection of God and God's people. And so people say, well, you know, I just sin. Nothing ever happens to me. Look, you know, they even get boastful about it. I feel very sad in my heart because they are opening themselves up to crossing the line. So. That's another thing we can do. Another one is to, if the person heeds, he listens, then the next step is to repent and to confess and be restored to fellowship. So individually, then, there's roles and responsibilities for both parties, both the one who does the restoration and the one who needs restoration. Corporately, as a body in Christ, what are we to do? Well, the scriptures, and we can find it everywhere in, in plentiful places. We can care more. We can love more. We can forgive more. We can restore more. Okay? Those are things that we, as a church, can do more of. Where do we see this happening? How do we see this happening? Turn to Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians. Remember First Corinthians 5? There was this guy who sinned, and they finally put him out of the church. But if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, the jury is out on whether th- this reference is to the same person. Okay? It could. It could be the same person. But it may not be. It may be another case totally. That's not the important thing. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. This person apparently sinned, but now he has repented. He's come back. Verse 6, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, it says. Verse 8, wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And so as a church... When a person does go through this process and they do come back, what is our reaction to be? It is to reaffirm our love for that person. I unfortunately know of some churches, I've heard some stories where a person has gone astray. They've gone on their, they've chosen their own path and they've gone through the, all the processes and they've, they've re- truly repented of their sin. And when they went back to the church, everybody just turned their back on them. They don't want nothing to do with them. What does Paul say? Paul says we should reaffirm our love to to them. So, individually and corporately, churches can help restore people to fellowship with the Lord. Our battles with sin 
in our lives can bring us to the point where the church may have to call us to accountability for our own good. Either we follow and obey the Lord or we don't. When we don't, there is a process and priorities that come into play, and we've learned all about those. We need church discipline, and God provides it with justice and compassion for our own sake and for the sake of others. And so I would hope that as we near this this point, that if we need to, if we need discipline, we will welcome discipline. If we need to exercise discipline, then we will welcome discipline and praise God for it. And this is what God demands of the church. Okay, this is what God demands of the church. And I hope that in the future, and I hope that now and in the future, GBC will be up to it. Be up to it. Because we all need it. We all need it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, Lord, we're burdened for those who are wrapped and caught in a web of sin. And Lord, we also understand that as we pray for them, we need to pray for ourselves. Why? Because it's impossible for us to fight it off ourselves. And we need everyone's help. Help us, dear Lord, now in this fight. Help us to help others to fight against sin as well. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.